0: Good morning, noon or night, whenever and wherever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host, my name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on September 24th, 2020. Find out more about the program at The Shift with Doug McKenty on Facebook and YouTube, at McKenty on Twitter, or at www.theshiftnow.com on the web. Today on the podcast, I'm happy to announce my guest, tenured MIT researcher Dr. Stephanie Seneff. Dr. Seneff has a Ph.D. in electrical engineering from MIT, where she spent a career initially working on voice-activated artificial intelligence interfaces, which eventually became what we now know as Siri and Elixa. For the last 12 years, the focus of her research switched to biochemistry, as she sought to discover the root cause of the autism epidemic in the United States and across the world. Eventually, her quest led her to an understanding that the ubiquitous environmental toxin glyphosate, found in the common weed killer Roundup, may be the primary driver of the condition. Dr. Sinef is on the cutting edge of science, and this is not a statement I make lightly. Her long research career, first in electrical engineering, then as a molecular biologist, gives her a unique perspective. Perhaps more important than her extensive knowledge of the current scientific literature is her first-hand understanding of the current limits of the scientific revolution. This open-minded approach to the study of science with a respect to the unknown has allowed her to develop theories outside of the mainstream with the understanding that more research must be done in order for science to continue to evolve as our species awareness pushes further into a clearer understanding of the world around us. One such theory concerns a fundamental change in the understanding of the role viruses play in human health and development. While allopathic medicine is driven by a viral theory that suggests a martial paradigm where viruses invade our bodies and bring only disease, Recent scientific discoveries in the areas of epigenetics and a deeper understanding of the workings of the internal human virome have created an environment where old theories are questioned and new theories produced to incorporate the progress the scientific community has made in the last few decades. Dr. Stephanie Seneff is just the person for the job. Stay tuned as we discuss her theory that viruses are integral not only to human health, but human evolution as well. Her theory of the necessity of viral spread will sound outlandish to those who cling to the older scientific models, but, if right, her ideas could transform the way humanity thinks about disease. Dr. Sineff believes there is a strong possibility that viruses act like a software patch, uploading encoded RNA into our genome that helps the body eliminate new toxic threats arising in the external environment. The function of a virus, according to the theory... Is to produce a controlled burn eliminating the toxin then incorporating information into the genome in order to help the body deal with the toxin in the future only within a person with a taxed immune system does the controlled burn become a wildfire leading to disease symptoms and potentially death listen in as dr sinep describes this theory in detail to produce a more holistic view of the virus and its role in human evolution which shakes the foundations of the current germ theory model of disease spread I will post two episodes of the roundtable discussion in the show notes, which include Dr. Seneff for more backstory, and you can find out more about her work at stephanieseneff.net. I'd like to thank Dr. Stephanie Seneff for agreeing to this interview, and thank her for helping to make the shift. And hello, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining me today on The Shift. I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Seneff. We are going to have a discussion about viruses that I think is going to blow your mind, so I hope you stay tuned for this one. Because uh, Dr. Senef has a different theory about um, how viruses work, what viruses are um, We've been one of the things I think that is positive that's coming out of this whole COVID-19 thing is that we've actually Opened up the Pandora's box of this conversation of germ theory versus terrain theory And so all kinds of ideas are bubbling up to the surface and for all of you who are doing research on this you're gonna find this conversation to be exceptionally interesting because we're gonna go into detail about this alternative theory of disease uh, and how viruses work and what's really going on, potentially really going on here, um, that talks about um, the importance of having a healthy immune system uh, and a system that's in balance and doesn't really look at these bacteria and viruses as, as enemies that need to be defeated on the battlefield, but rather Uh, Parts of our lives that when everything is working, they are actually helpers and they're helping us uh, To live lives uh, and to evolve as human beings. So these theories of Dr. Seneff are are fascinating and um, you'll be interested in hearing what she says But without further ado, uh, let's have her introduce herself and one of the things um, That's really interesting about you Dr. Seneff is that you have a background in electrical engineering and you actually chose to switch over into this whole uh, molecular biology area and this area of health. So can you describe that process for us and, and just how much of the science crossed over for you? You know, what kind of foundation did the electrical engineering give you that, that helped you uh, in terms of, of understanding biology at this level?
1: Yeah, well thank you, thank you very much for having me. Uh, Just to say I'm a senior research scientist at MIT and I've been at MIT all my life basically. I I trained at MIT, got all my degrees there, never left. So I love the place, I've got four sons, they all went to MIT. So (laughs) we're an MIT family, great Great. place by the way, and they've been very supportive of my work. Um, My undergraduate degree was in biology from MIT and I actually spent a year in graduate school in biology and then I dropped out and had started a family Came back to school many years later majored in electrical engineering and computer science. I always loved uh, biology. I never really left it. And my, my PhD thesis was on an auditory model for human processing, human auditory processing of speech. And so, and then I went on to develop all kinds of a dialogue and interaction systems with the computer, um, spoken dialogue uh, interactions with the computer, um, precursors to Siri and Amazon's Echo. So, you know, those devices. Mm-hmm. It's fun to see that that's all become commoditized at this point and in fact that was really serendipitous for me back about 12 years ago uh when it was clear to me that um the work i was doing was going to become out of out of reach for the academics because the companies were taking over once you have companies hiring massive numbers of people to do the stuff you did with on a shoestring budget with just a handful of graduate students you really can't do it anymore you know you have to Hmm. do something else and um and it was lucky because I was I was interested in autism. I was noticing the rates were going up dramatically, and I was worried about that. And I was frustrated that most of the funding was going towards, towards genetics. Genetics is a factor, but it's not the reason for the uh, epidemic. Uh, I wanted to find out what it was, and I looked at I started looking at the environmental chemicals. And it took me five years of searching before I came upon glyphosate quite accidentally. Um, glyphosate is the active ingredient in Roundup. I think it is the primary reason why we have an epidemic today in multiple diseases, not just autism, but Alzheimer's, diabetes, obesity, heart disease, uh, liver failure, kidney failure, um, various uh, aches and pains, you know, Mm -hmm. issues with joints, uh, of course, gut problems, you know, and dysbiosis in the gut, all these things, uh, celiac disease, uh, food intolerances, all of these things, I think, are very strongly connected to the fact that we are eating glyphosate in our food every day and our country um, uses more than anybody else. And um, our country's government thinks it's safe, which Monsanto, has, Monsanto is the maker. They have the patent. Um, they assure us that it's very safe for humans and therefore we don't need to worry. So they don't bother to test how much is in the food. But other people are testing and they're finding high amounts in foods that are very popular with children like uh, Cheerios and goldfish crackers and uh, Oreo cookies and things like that. So kids are getting a lot of glyphosate in their food that's causing them to be sick. Uh, and not just autism, but e- eczema and asthma and celiac disease and all kinds of foods and intolerances and all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think glyphosate a major contributor.
0: And so we're seeing, we're seeing glyphosate as a major toxin, but this is kind of in, in the larger picture, this is what we're talking about is that the the diseases that we find in the body are caused by toxicities of, of all sorts. It could be glyphosate, which is a major right. factor, but also, you know, we've got the aluminums or the heavy metals uh, yeah. in the vaccines and elsewhere. Um, and, um,
1: fluoride
0: and, and right and, and sure the, li- the list goes on
1: on and on and on yeah and of course the pcbs you know the plastics i mean all of these things and the emfs so there's just so many toxic exposures today that it's a wonder we're still alive but i think sometimes i wonder mm-hmm. why we're doing as well as we're doing considering yeah. all the exposures and glyphosate and you know, makes all of them worse than they would otherwise be because it disrupts the, the body's mechanisms to detox them
0: Well, and it's amazing just to bring it up. I mean, the body has an amazing um, ability to adapt. I mean, it can live in a pretty toxic environment for a pretty long time. Uh, And I think that's where we've gotten to, actually, at least in certain areas of the world where the toxicity levels are just consistently high and people are just getting used to living with this kind of stress. We could talk about the electromagnetic, uh, the radiation uh, stress as well. Um, We're just getting constantly bombarded. And so um, we, can, we can turn the conversation, well, why don't we talk a little bit about COVID-19 and some of your philosophy uh, around that and why COVID-19 presents in some people uh, and some people get very sick and yet other people are asymptomatic or some areas of the world are, are getting hit pretty hard and then, and then some areas are not seeing so much.
1: Yeah, it's really really fascinating the epidemiology of COVID and I've been studying it a lot because it's such an interesting pattern And I believe it reveals an incredible signal about what's going on across the world with our health And what you can see very clearly is that the countries that are hardest hit and that's mostly the United States, um, Brazil, Argentina um, All of Western Europe pretty much um, South Africa, but not the rest of Africa. So those countries are um, are all very heavy users of glyphosate. It really stands out in my mind that glyphosate usage or glyphosate exposure is a pre uh, precondition for um, bad outcome with COVID-19. And particularly mm-hmm. what was interesting to me was the biofuels. And I've, I've talked quite a bit about that now, the biofuel angle, because um, the U- US and Europe are lead- and Brazil are all leaders in the biofuel industry. That industry has really been blossoming in the last few years. It's, it's been increasing quite dramatically the amount of um, fuel that's becoming available as a biofuel, and that's not just biodiesel, bioethanol, biogas, biohome heating oil, and bioaviation fuel. All of these things are coming into play, and uh, we're not really very much aware of that. And so it it was really uh, quite a deep dive I had to do to educate myself on the biofuel industry. It's quite, quite interesting. But when you think about it, you know, they spray the... um, the the, the uh, wheat with uh, glyphosate just before harvest they harvest it, and of course then you eat the wheat and you get celiac disease because of the glyphosate But then they take the stubs that are left over and they throw them onto a barge and take them down to new york city and turn them into bio, Biofuel And so I think that biofuel is going to be contaminated with glyphosate. So what I think for example, New york city was really The epicenter of the epicenter of um, of us was queens new york Queens and and Brooklyn, those two cities got hit really hard, really fast with the overflowing the ICUs and that sort of thing. That's what really caught um, our imagination about, oh, my God, this is a really serious disease because this happened in New York City. Mm -hmm. Those places were very much primed for it because they have toxic air and their air is toxic for other reasons. You know, they have nanoparticles and whatnot, but they um, but New York is a leader in the biofuel industry. And very proud of it. In fact, they require five percent uh, biofuel in New York City. They require five percent bio. If if you have a home heating oil, it has to be partial. That's the only city in the world, as far as I know, that requires that. And they give you a tax break in all of New York State if you have if you're choosing a bio option as part of your home heating oil. So you've got it. You've got it in the gas. You know, they've got this uh, huge fifty acre uh, sewage processing plant. Um, in Queens, um, it's at the there's a little creek called Newtown Creek that separates Queens from Brooklyn, and on that creek is this 50 acre facility, um, and then it was a, uh, labeled a toxic waste, waste site, um, and given a lot of money from the government to fix it up back in 2010, I think, and, and so they um, it, 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 that creek is very very polluted with all kinds of things, but they um, New York is developing a sophisticated technology to combine sewage waste with other things like waste food or, or the residues from the crops, and, and mix all that together and turn out uh, fuel. And in the fact, they make enough biogas to give it back to the community. So they sell gas to the uh, to the locals in uh, to the as a to the residential and to the uh, commercial industry, um, as because they, they're capturing it and they're selling it, which of course is a really good thing because these gases are very very bad greenhouse gases. This um, methane gas, which is one one of the things they're getting a lot of, if you let it release into the air, it's like sixty times as bad as carbon dioxide as a. As a greenhouse gas, and it's really interesting to look at the whole history of sewage management because we used to just dump it out to sea, and then we realized we were polluting the ocean. So we decided we couldn't do that anymore, and then we just sort of let you know gas escape into the air. And then we're like, oh my God, we're causing global climate change. We can't do that anymore. So we've got to capture it. We've got to recycle it. We can use it as fuel. That would be wonderful. We can reduce the fossil fuel consumption. All sounds good, mm-hmm. and um, and it is good. It's a good idea. I think. But when you've got all these toxic chemicals in the mix, you're going to you're going to poison your population. So I think people in New York City and elsewhere in the world, and like the same thing is true for Lombardy in in, in Italy. They also have a, a biofuel effort. They use a lot of biodiesel uh, in in Europe. Um, in America, it's mostly bioethanol. You know, we have we have pretty high requirements. We have pretty high levels of bioethanol in our gasoline in the, in the United States, and that you know comes from things like corn, which is a GMO Roundup Ready product. So Europe has this biodiesel and they end up contaminating the air in the cities, I think, with glyphosate. This is a theory. I haven't proven it. Uh, It makes sense to me. It could be leaking at the gas station. It could be coming out of the factories where it's being made. It could be an engine that's not properly tuned because you've got plenty of um, organic matter that comes out of these fumes. These toxic fumes from the cars are known to be very, very bad with their nanoparticles. And multiple studies from both Europe and the United States have shown a correlation between air pollution and. uh, increased risk to death from COVID-19.
0: All right. And then we could go ahead and do this comparison and contrast between Africa and the United States in terms of the COVID death counts and and the presence of glyphosate and these other pollutants. And then we'll start getting into the biology of of the virus itself. But yes, that's the exciting that.
1: part. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and... and- Yeah, Africa is a a really big mystery. When you look at, you know, you have all this data now on the web. It's really lovely. You can find these plots, you know, the whole globe and then have color coded and where is it worst and where is it best, sort of like the death rate per population. The number I like to look at is the uh, rate of COVID death per population, not per infection, but per population, because infection is a very um, variable number that can depend on how many tests you're doing and that sort of thing. So it's Mm -hmm. harder to rely on the infection rate. But the death rate, I think, is probably a more reliable number um, across the globe. And you can see these plots. And what's really, really striking when you look at these plots is that uh, um, uh, Africa is practically totally resistant to COVID-19. They have extremely low death rates. And this is a huge surprise. You know, people were all anticipating that it would go on fire once it hit Africa. Because mm-hmm. they've got all, the, all these risk factors, you know, poverty, crowding in the cities, air pollution. They've got all of those things. And yet, they're not getting; they're not dying from COVID nineteen. It's quite remarkable. And and you look, especially, I I started by looking at Nigeria, which is just amazing because their death rate from COVID nineteen is one one hundredth of ours. It's not just it's you know two, twice as much or four times as much; it's a hundred times as much. Yeah. Our death rate from covid compared to nigeria. That is a huge difference and it demands an explanation So, I mean I became rather obsessed on nigeria at that point And of course there's many other con- uh, countries in africa similarly very very low death rate from covid lots of poverty And of course the blacks are more susceptible than the whites in america. They have a 2 twofold Increased risk some have said that that's a genetic reason. Well, then if if that's true, nigeria Should have two times as much, you know, right? And yeah, Nigeria has, yeah, go ahead.
0: <laughs> well, I, I've just I've heard some correlations with vitamin D and, and uh, Covid symptomology, and um, people of color tend to have lower vitamin D levels. Right. And, and so that may be uh, a reason why. Uh, they're getting it more here, but then again, you'd think that they, there'd be more in Africa if that were
1: the case. Same problem. Yeah, it's really interesting. They have all these um, risk factors uh, without uh, without the disease. It's so interesting. And so, um, so one thing I know because I actually wrote a chapter for a book. It's uh, is, is going to be uh, coming out shortly. I hope uh, Don Huber is the uh, editor. And I wrote a chapter on Africa, a glyphosate usage in Africa. So I know about this. It's it, you know the data are sparse, but it's pretty clear that the Af- Africa uses a lot less glyphosate than we do. I would estimate a factor of ten. So we use t- ten times as much glyphosate as they use in Africa. And in, in, within Africa, South Africa by, by far uses the most. And South Africa by far has the worst COVID nineteen. So that's very consistent mm-hmm. in Africa. And um, the other. Um, the other parts of Africa that have more, but not very much, but more than that, Sub Saharan Africa is just amazing. They're just like as if the a- epidemic is not happening. Whereas the part along the Mediterranean, they have sort of some intermediate level of, of, uh, of Death rate and they eat a, they have a food desert because they're, they're very dry and they they get they import a lot of their food from the West So they're getting quite a bit of glyphosate in the sort of processed foods that they're eating from the West And I think that may be contributing to their increased rate But it's still much much less than what we're getting in the United States, you know, so uh, Sub-saharan Africa. So one thing that I got interested in at first was malaria because Again looking at Nigeria Malaria uh, is endemic in Africa. It practically doesn't exist in the United States. It is a disease that infects the red blood cells And um, and is very interesting and of course in in places where malaria exists you have a high rate of uh, beta -beta thalassemia or um, uh, The sickle cell anemia these kinds of genetic diseases that that cause the red blood cells to recycle very um, Very frequently the the red blood cells are um, don't live long mm-hmm. and in fact often they get degraded before they even get out the door so it's quite interesting that these people tend to have anemia um, but they're recycling their blood cells a lot and that is actually I think protecting them from COVID-19 and I have some very complicated explanations for that which I we may get into later but mm-hmm. um, so Nigeria has 25 percent of the world's malaria and that may be very protective for them um, the same as it protects the, the yeah it, it, malaria protects from COVID-19, perhaps in a similar way as uh, sickle cell anemia protects from malaria if you get my drift. It's kind of the same thing. If you're, if you're doing something with red blood cells that, that um, keeps them from being susceptible to the, to the cascade that ends up killing you with, um, with COVID-19. That's right. a little complicated, not very clear, but I'd have well, to go into a lot more detail to make it clearer. But
0: uh, Sure. I mean, I just I have one question about uh, the, the hydroxychloroquine uh, solution, because I know hydroxychloroquine was used uh, initially as a malaria. Exactly. malaria. So is there a connection there then with why it may be helpful with COVID?
1: I absolutely think so. And I also wonder whether countries that are familiar with malaria, are just naturally thinking that maybe we'll just use the same drugs to treat COVID right. and maybe that's causing them to have a lot lower death rate. I think that is quite possible. And that's another piece of the puzzle that I'm thinking is, is going on with Africa, that they have that malaria, they know how to treat it. They're just using that same treatment strategy for COVID and it's working. And of course the hydroxychloroquine is a political football, and right? It's just been crazy how the pharma has made sure that we know that it's not not working at all. And you know, fraudulent studies are coming out in in prestigious journals like The Lancet claiming that it doesn't work and then setting everybody back. I mean, it's a great way to just increase our, our mortality rate with COVID-19, in my opinion.
0: Right. I, I think the, uh, the numbers are pretty clear that in countries that uh, are using hydroxychloroquine treatments, uh, with the protocol with zinc, um, yes. they're they're seeing they're seeing uh, much lower death rates from COVID nineteen. It's really unfortunate that uh, it has been so politicized here, and and it's uh, difficult to to be able to use it around in the United States because it's. Uh, I mean, I think it's uh, it's working everywhere where it's being applied. So it's unfortunate.
1: Yes. So I have another story (laughs) that gets even more interesting than malaria. And this is really brand new for me. So I'm a little, uh, I need to do more research, but I'm Mm -hmm. just just starting to see this. And I I see it clearly that it's going to be a a major factor. And that's tuberculosis. It's extremely interesting, tuberculosis. And uh, as you probably know, tuberculosis is one of the most, uh, one of the highest, Infections, killer infections. Tuberculosis is a serious problem in many countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in the United States. The United States has a very low rate of tuberculosis. There's a tuberculosis vaccine, and that many, many countries require. I was really surprised. Most of the countries, I think, in the world require mandate uh, a tuberculosis vaccine. And there was a paper that showed up that said that vaccine might be protective from COVID. And in fact, I, this is personal, but my son, I, I, I have a new grandson who was born just a week ago. And uh, in in South Africa, and the doctors there wanted to give their child a tuberculosis vaccine because they said, oh, it it, it helps, you know, it's been shown that it helps against COVID. That's how I learned this is from my son.
0: Interesting. He
1: he refused it. He refused it because my son doesn't like vaccines, but... I was glad to hear that (laughs) but of course it made me interested in looking into it yeah and it's very interesting because that article um, it's what i call data torture you know they it looks very clear to me that it's not the vaccine that's giving them protection it's the disease and it it becomes very clear when you look at the data Hmm. because um it's quite fascinating but they had a they had a um, divided the countries of the world into three groups one was those who don't mandate the vaccine at all and of course the united states is in that group and the second group was countries that used to mandate it but don't anymore. And then the third group was the countries that still mandate it. And the third group had, on average, less death from COVID, but a huge, huge variants, huge variants. Mm-hmm. And when you look within that group, you say which ones have the infection, have a high rate of, of tuberculosis infection. And this is Mycobacterium tuberculosis. Um, the ones that have a high rate of infection versus the ones that have a low rate of infection but still require the vaccine. And then you get a complete separation, you know, because Europe, for example, has a low rate of, I have some numbers here, but Europe has a low rate of um, infection, but they require the vaccine in many countries in Europe. And um, let's see if I can figure this out. So uh, mandatory, low bird mandatory vaccine, UK, United Kingdom, France, Portugal, and Ireland, and all of them have very high rates of uh, death rates from COVID-19. So they're requiring the vaccine, but it's not working to help them. Mm-hmm. That's because they're not getting the disease. Right. They're not getting the vaccine, and then there was a, um, and then the ones that have a very low rate of of infection, very low rate of COVID, have a high rate of of infection, and that's much of Africa. I mean, again, sub-Saharan Africa is really central to tuberculosis. Eighty percent of the people in sub-Saharan Africa are infected with the with the um, bacterium. Most of them don't show any symptoms. They're perfectly fine their entire life, and nothing ever happens. In fact, I think the bacterium is helping them out. And it's protecting them from COVID-19. So, you know, so you you want to welcome the tuberculosis bacterium. Right. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's what I think, you know?
0: (laughs) Well, well, so, well, anyway, I mean, this is a, this is the perfect segue, uh, not to cut you off, but um, into just exactly how viruses and bacterium work within the body and can help with, with diseases like COVID-19. But go ahead. You can finish your thought if you want, or we could start.
1: No, we can go ahead. I mean, I want to introduce a <laughs> new topic, sure. which is fascinating to me—absolutely fascinating. Well, uh,
0: and I'll just and and I'll just um, preface this as well. We had a, a roundtable discussion. I'll put I'll put some links to a few of my other conversations with Dr. Senef, uh in the show notes here, so people can check those out. Um, but we had a, an epigenetics conversation uh, uh, maybe a month ago, and um, it kind of came out in that conversation that. Um, our, our gut biome works symbiotically with our DNA. This is something that I didn't know. And so, so now we're getting into like, <laughs> like genetics and, and the gut biome and the gut virome and how they work hand in hand with our genetics to produce the chemicals that we need. So someone's DNA uh, may have um, the, the encoded in it the recipe for certain chemicals, um, but other people may not have that Recipe for chemicals in their DNA. So what will happen is their gut biome will cultivate Bacteria that then will produce those chemicals for the person's body. So we actually have this really symbiotic relationship um, With our body and our our genetics and the bacterium That's in our body in order to produce the the chemical balance that we need in order to survive and be healthy Um, it's just a fascinating concept to understand that that our gut biome kind of works so closely hand in hand with our, our, our DNA, essentially, uh, yes. to, to make up for, you know, holes in the DNA that, you know, that things that may not be there that we, we still need, then the, then the gut biome makes up for that by cultivating this bacteria. Do you want to kind of describe this concept and delve into it a little bit so we can go into how and, and even how viruses then can play into all of this?
1: Right, exactly. And in fact, it's not just our DNA, but it's also our toxic exposures. So when we are exposed to various toxic chemicals, they disrupt uh, the performance of our of our proton proteins in our body. You know, we get dysfunction of various things because of those toxic exposures. And of course, the exposures will also kill off some of our beneficial bacteria. But the pathogens that arise in in the situation of toxic exposures, are, help, are trying to help out so all the bacteria are pitching in to try to balance things and make things work correctly in the context of whatever's going on and there can be major genetic problems there can be ma- major pollution uh, toxic chemical problems and then the there's a massive number of different uh, bacteria and, and viruses and and, uh, and um, yeast you know all these different species that are growing in our gut um, are going to work together to try to make the situation there as happy as they can make it in the context of all these stressors. And and so it's not just the genome but it's also the toxic environment okay. that's going to influence how they how they end up.
0: So when toxins come into your body and then prevent your body from naturally producing important chemicals for, for natural healthy processes um, then not only will your body be cleaning out these toxins and trying to detox as, as much as it can but then the biome can go ahead and start to, to uh, replace the function of the damaged parts of the body in terms of going ahead and starting to produce more of these chemicals that the body needs. Um,
1: right. I mean, of course, it's also just a matter of supply and demand. And so, for example, what I think is happening with glyphosate in the gut, one of the things, and I, I have a book that's coming out hopefully next year on glyphosate, and I have a whole chapter on the gut. And in that chapter, I talk about um, all the all the disruption that goes on with glyphosate and what happens is that glyphosate disrupts your body's ability to break down proteins and so the proteins end up in the lower gut they end up in the large intestine uh, as peptide sequences that haven't been broken down yet so you're not getting amino acids you know the amino acids you need to rebuild your own proteins Uh but you're not able to break down the proteins completely so you end up with these threads of peptide sequences that are in the in the uh, large intestine, and then the microbes there uh, are able to break it down, and then they can make ammonia out of the nitrogen that's in the uh, in the amino acids. They make ammonia, and then ammonia is a major signaling gas that can float up to the brain and cause brain fog and end up with the inflammation in the brain. So they are stuck with the problem of trying to get rid of these uh, peptides, you know, because they weren't digested properly up upstairs, and so there's all okay. this complexity that goes on. Um, peptides. Also, I, peptides, peptides are, are yeah those are sequences of amino acids that are subsets of proteins proteins get chopped down chopped up into little peptides and then eventually into individual amino acids The, okay. the amino acids are the building blocks of proteins mm. and so that you you eat protein i mean people are buying all kinds of supplements that are aminos right various kinds of amino acid supplements right people are buying those in spades these days i see huge you know offerings at the store i think that it's a smart thing to do if you if your proteins can't break if you're uh, enzymes can't break down your proteins then you need to eat your proteins already broken down it's basically you're eating your food already digested to some extent you know right and you do that and glyphosate is forcing you to do that
0: so basically when you eat like you'll eat a protein and then your body breaks it down into the individual amino acids and then those individual amino acids can go throughout the body and be used as the building blocks for the types of proteins that you need for whatever it is your muscles exactly or your,
1: yeah Yes, okay. that's exactly right. You break them down and then you re- repurpose them into new proteins that your body uh, assembles according to the DNA code.
0: All right. And so then how, where do we go from here in terms of, well, I guess what's happening is if you get uh, toxic, then you're not breaking down these proteins properly. And this is causing all kinds of problems. And yeah, autoimmune they- disease
1: for one thing, because these foreign peptides get into the circulation and glyphosate induces a leaky gut. And so these undigested proteins get into the general circulation. The immune cells don't like that at all. They, they recognize them as foreign proteins and they okay. attack them. And then when you have a molecular mimicry where there's a, a human protein that resembles that protein, this is what causes autoimmune disease, is when these undigested proteins get loose into the general circulation, the immune cells respond to them. And then they get too responsive. They start attacking your own proteins that resemble those proteins.
0: So is this... this This is what, this would be an allergic response. Basically you're eating something, your body just doesn't break it down. It gets into the blood circulation and the immune system sees it as a foreign, as a foreign substance. And you have some kind of inflammatory response.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's very clear that glyphosate is causing celiac disease through that process Mm -hmm. because the uh, celiac uh, gluten has a lot of proline and proline is a difficult amino acid to break down. And we have specialized enzymes in a lactobacillus, uh, and Bifidobacteria have special enzymes that break apart that protein help us out with that and those uh, Microbes are especially sensitive to glyphosate. So they're getting killed They're not able to help us out to break down the, the gluten and then the gluten is becoming allergenic I think that's what's causing the epidemic. We're seeing in celiac disease.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense um Let's see where, where to go. What's the next step then? We're we, go talking... back
1: to, we can go back to the uh, tuberculosis because that's very okay. interesting. Yeah, let's do uh, you it. Know, 80%. So 80% of the people in Africa are infected. So you start to think maybe that's a normal thing to be infected with. it If it happens to be around, you know, it's maybe it's a normal thing. 80%. Right. Most of them have no symptoms their entire life. It's not a problem. The people who get symptoms are the ones who have a, a dysfunctional immune system. If their immune system is, is damaged or if they just have poor genetics or whatever, They've gotten cancer and they're taking cancer therapy. I mean, all these, you know, because cancer therapy just uh, weakens the immune system. Well, let's, they, and, and let's,
0: let's talk about the difference. So, you know, asymptomatic and symptomatic in anything. There's tuberculosis, but there's also, we're hearing this about, of course, COVID-19 right now. Why are some people yes, asymptomatic exactly. and other people symptomatic to any kind of, you know, a virus, the presence of a virus or bacteria?
1: yeah it's really fascinating the question between systematic uh symptomatic and asymptomatic and that's the key thing you know uh-huh. if you can get covid and be perfectly fine why not just get it right it's not a problem right <laughs> if, eventually it's going to have to i think it's going to become endemic in our and i think it's going to become endemic in our population across the globe it's going to be one of those viruses that's just out there sure And we're going to be coping with it just like the flu virus and just like the tuberculosis virus you know Right. Um, the tuber- bacteria sorry tuberculosis bacterium these things are just out there and we we need to get used to them And in fact, they're serving a useful role and that's the interesting part. And in fact the tuberculosis uh, Microbe is fascinating and I, I need to read more. I've been furiously reading papers about that that um, Mycobacterium because it's very very interesting mm-hmm. and it turns out that um, it, it produces so there's several interesting things about it, but one is that it produces a which is vitamin K2 it produces a vitamin K2 sulfate and that's an essential part of its ability to um, to Thrive in the human host. It lives inside the human cell. It kind of acts in a way like another mitochondrion. I would say it's like an um, A foreign mito- mitochondrion. And so the mitochondria are actually really really crucial to our health And they're being very very badly hurt by glyphosate and by many other toxic chemicals. Mitochondria are really hurting right now in our bodies and
0: Can we just just, uh, specify the definition of that? The mitochondria, I know, um, they produce the ATP, which is the energy. So when our body is burning energy, so our muscles can work and we can go about our day that this comes from the mitochondria, which is a, a part of the cell that produces this energy,
1: right? Yes. And in fact, our muscle cells in our brain, our neurons have tons of mitochondria. We have way more than most other cells, cell types um they're very very important for generating the energy that we need to think and the energy that we need to move
0: right and and if you're not if you don't have uh healthy mitochondria that's when you're going to start seeing things like chronic fatigue huh
1: exactly absolutely that's the case and i've been studying chronic fatigue very very interesting and i think it's due to the fact that glyphosate is destroying the mitochondria wow and so yeah so our mitochondria are really in trouble um and not just glyphosate, of course, many, many chemicals. Aluminum is another one that attacks the mitochondria. Many chemicals attack the mitochondria. And what happens is the mitochondria get sick to the point where the interesting thing is that they get inefficient at making ATP, but instead of making ATP, they spew out toxic uh, reactive oxygen species. So the mitochondria not only become unable to do their job, but they're destructive in terms of releasing toxic um, m- molecules that are going to attack the cell and kill it so it's a double whammy it's not just that they're not producing enough energy they're also producing toxic um things the reactive oxygen species the reactive nitrogen species these things are going to harm the local environment and so okay. sick mitochondria are a huge problem and one thing i think covid19 is clearly doing in my view is it is fixing the mitochondria I would say that in these cases of acute COVID uh, reactions where people end up with severe hypoxia, they have very, very little oxygen in their blood, very low oxygen. And they have, and they start getting, the red blood cells start getting uh, lysis. They get broken apart. The hemoglobin, and you, the, uh, there's an upregulation of heme oxygenase, which is an enzyme that breaks down hemoglobin, produces carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide, of course, even further prevents the oxygen because it binds to hemoglobin, disables it from carrying oxygen. So you're in a total mess where your mitochondria are starving Uh of oxygen. That sounds like a really bad thing. But the trick is that also what it's doing, and this is so fascinating to me, is that the virus is also implementing a whole other program at the same time that is going to be able to deliver to the mitochondria uh, deuterium depleted water, which is going to help the mitochondria to fix their problems. Okay. I want So interesting
0: can we, we before we get into the deuterium <laughs> let's let's go ahead and try to because i the way that i see it and and this is just my layman's perspective but but you're, you know our body produces energy is a lot like a fire burning you'll you'll have a little bit of something well the carbon you know I, I, if a carbohydrate that has a carbon molecule mm-hmm. is in there and the, it gets oxygen and this burns and this produces energy is this that's basic, good that's very level, good yeah. kind of, mm-hmm. what's that's happening right. inside the mitochondria and then this energy that's produced we call atp
1: atp atp yes okay uh, when it produces atp it also produces water and that water is deuterium depleted and that's this is a uh, a thing the mitochondria obsess on so they they hate deuterium deuterium is, is a natural element it's a uh, heavy hydrogen and it's present in, everywhere in the water you drink it's, it's unavoidable in the environment and our body has developed an incredibly sophisticated system for making sure that the mitochondria have low deuterium. And if they get too much deuterium, they start breaking in exactly this way. They can't make ATP. They spew out these reactive oxygen species. There, because there's
0: people. too much hydrogen in the deuterium? Too much
1: deuterium. Too much deuterium in the water. Deuterium is heavy hydrogen. Right. Okay. So it's, a, it's, a, it's another isoform of hydrogen. It's just It's got an extra neutron, which makes it twice as heavy. It makes it behave differently in ways that actually totally disrupt ATP synthesis. And it's complicated biophysics. It has to do with proton tunneling. Proton tunneling is something that is essential for ATP synthesis. And deuterium is very, very bad at tunneling. It's sort of like it's too fat and clumsy, it can't tunnel. So if you've got too much deuterium, it sort of puts a hiccup into the, it's like putting gasoline, putting sugar into the gasoline tank. I think that's a good analogy. It wrecks the mitochondria if there's too much. Right. And that's on keeping it low and they keep it low with a whole bunch of enzymes that are called flavoproteins, and those enzymes, every one of them are disrupted by glyphosate. And I can see how that would clearly be true, given that if, if it's true that it substitutes for glycine during proteins. So that's kind of complicated biophysics, but their biochemistry. Right. Well, I mean, that's what's just fascinating
0: about talking to you, actually, is that you know these things on so many levels, that we just get smaller <laughs> and smaller, or we can get kind of bigger and bigger, and we can see you know, what's going on. Um, and, and, it's just so interesting to, I mean, I'm just fascinated that, that human knowledge has even gotten to where we figured all of this out, you know, yeah.
1: <laughs> absolutely. Really I'm so thrilled with all the papers that are out there and I have to give a lot of credit to all those people working in the lab, you know, doing these studies sure. these details. and a lot of times they're reporting something they observe. They don't really understand what's going on. And for me, that's okay. That's a piece of the puzzle. I want to try to work in. Right. So, right. I love the puzzle and the biology <laughs> puzzle is just enormous. It's so big. I can't. <laughs> <cover after> it. <laughs> but well, it's truly fascinating
0: I know and I well, I mean, you know what needs to happen and one of the things that you said to me in our previous Conversations was there's basically it's like humanity's on the verge of a revolution in health I mean, we know so much now that we know how to be healthy um, But it's not happening I think because of corporate and political forces and the fact that maybe this scientific knowledge is kind of so new I, You know, I don't know Um, we don't have to delve too deeply into this, but there is a, there is this alternative view of, of how to deal with our health that we're, we're getting into now that because science has, has progressed so far. Um, and we just need to, I think as a community and as a culture get to a place where we can start to, um, integrate this knowledge into everybody's daily life so they can start to be healthier in their daily lives, you know, right. Um without getting too far off track, I want to take a step or two back because you were talking about how then tuberculosis, and then you even made the statement that COVID-19 is useful in this way, mm-hmm. like not something horrible that's coming no. into our bodies. It's just killing us, which is, I right. think. 99.9% of the people I out there know. think you breathe in a virus and then it's just, it's, it's just this trying to kill you. And that's all it's trying to do. It, it's
1: yeah, it's so it's sad how people have this image of viruses being so evil, you know, right? <laughs> actually trying to help us. And I think viruses are the agent, uh, main agent of evolution. And they're right. part of biology and they're, and they're all over the place. There's just so many of them all around. You couldn't possibly keep them out. And we keep on killing them. You know, we're spraying all these antiseptic things all over the place, which drives me nuts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, I know. Yeah, they're very, very helpful. The viruses and the bacteria and even the fungus, you know, a lot of people have problems with the yeast infection. But again, that yeast is helping them to solve problems that are being created by the toxic chemical exposures. You know, it, it, it's going right. to cause symptoms. The problem is that once you get these toxic chemical exposures, you can't get to the other side without symptoms, you know, when you're that sick. And, um, and sure. this whole business of rebooting the mitochondria, that's so fascinating with, to me with this COVID-19. I mean, I've really read a lot of papers. It's great they have so many papers coming out that are going into detail about what they're seeing. And you can start to get the whole picture. And to me, the picture is very clear. It's basically turning off the mitochondria. It wants to starve them of oxygen in order to turn them off. So they'll stop making ATP if they don't have oxygen. They'll stop making water. When they stop making water they can now receive water from the outside and the other piece of the puzzle is the Virus actually works very hard to make deuterium depleted water. It's very good at that Which is so fascinating if it gets hit by inflammation, which of course that's because your immune system couldn't clear it So you have a weak immune system. It can't clear the virus That induces the inflammatory response the inflammatory response changes the the lipids in the membrane of the virus in such a way that it it then induces this expression of this incredibly good protein that depleting deuterium. It's the most strong deuterium-depleting protein that I've found that gets activated, starts modifying. It starts stealing water by stealing hydrogens from the lipid membrane of the virus in order to make deuterium-depleted water. And then it traps that deuterium-depleted water in the capillary and then opens up uh, the the vein, the 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 venule. So it blocks the artery coming in, All this happens with these, with these uh, molecules, these are called uh, leukotrienes that are created by this enzyme called lipoxygenase that's triggered by the reactive, um, you know, the uh, inflammation combined with the viruses. The viruses have pulled this, uh, these uh, lipids from the membrane of the cell. So when the virus is growing in the cell and finally it it leaves, it goes through the cell's plasma membrane and it picks up a lipid um, coating you know wow. around its protein and that lipid is now in that virus and it's in the you know it can get into the blood and then in the, get into the capillary and in the capillary that's where it's going to produce this lipoxygenase that's going to turn it into a leukotriene that's going to create this whole signaling process that says close off the artery supply make the water make the beautiful water open up the vein side so the water can go into the tissues and you get sort of you know fluid in your lungs, right? Well, that fluid in your lungs is extremely, I suspect it's low deuterium water. And it's trying to uh, supply that water to the macrophages that have invaded the lungs as well as to the lung cells themselves to um, to their mitochondria. It's trying to deliver deuterium depleted water to the mitochondria, which have to be shut down because um, they need to lose their, um, they, they want, don't want to be making the water themselves because they want to bring it in from the outside and they want to lose their membrane. Um, drop, the voltage drop across their membrane so the water can get in. So I think this is highly um, speculative at this point, uh-huh. but it's making a whole lot of sense. And it's, right. it's just amazing what I'm finding. But, it, you know, you, you find fluid. And, of course, fluid in the lungs is also a property of tuberculosis and, um, and also all okay. these mucins that you cough up. And the mucins are interesting, too, because sulfo are able to trap um, gelled water. And the other piece of the theory that we have is that the gelled water traps deuterium. So the deuterium water actually releases protons and creates a battery. And that's something that Gerald Pollack has talked a lot about. But those protons are probably highly unlikely to be deuterons because deuterium is heavier. It tends to st- it tends to bind better. It doesn't leave nearly as well as hydrogen does. So that it's going to be a separation. Tra- trapping deuterium in the mucans will help to make the water deuterium depleted. So there's two things going on. One is making deuterium de- de- depleted water with these uh-huh. enzymes, pulling hydrogens and those hydrogens are already deuterium depleted because lipids are deuterium depleted. So the hydrogens you're pulling from those fats that the, that the uh, virus picked up when it left the cell, those hydrogens make water, uh, H2O, right, out of oxygen. And then that water is really great water. And then on top of that, the virus itself actually even probably traps um, deuterium in its membrane. And in fact, I read an amazing article that said that viruses are sensitive. We know they're sensitive to heat. You know, heat can kill them Uh pretty easily. And in fact, a temperature after 95 degrees, they start to fall apart. Um, A fever can help to kill them more effectively. So that's probably one reason why we have a fever when we get a viral infection. But deuterium stabilizes them. If they can get more deuterium inside the virus, they will become more resistant to temperature, which will allow them to grow more. And that's because they know how to solve the deuterium problem. So they're, you know, it's sort of really interesting that in the person for whom the virus takes off, that's the person who has a severe problem with deuterium, I think. Right. Uh, okay. So I just want to unpack. Yeah, here. Yeah. I want to keep trying to go science. one step at a time.
0: <laughs> no, it's 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 just incredible that um, you know, you can explain it in such detail. Just going back to the beginning, why is the mitochondria? The mitochondria is making energy in a healthy body, mm-hmm. but it's 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 um, it's not getting it. The water that it produces has deuterium in it. Okay,
1: yeah, all the water has deuterium. You know, it's it's one hundred fifty five parts per million in seawater. And then, and actually, glacier water has less, and the lowest is in the Antarctic water. So, if you could buy Antarctic water, it'd probably be good to drink because it right. helps <laughs> the deuterium in your mitochondria.
0: Well, and, and the mitochondria need the the uh, depleted deuterium. They don't want the deuterium. They don't
1: want deuterium. It messes them up. It, so, it, it sugar in the engine.
0: So, why are they getting too much in the first place? Glyphosate, <laughs> glyphosate. And, and and other toxins, right? But yeah, but glyphosate, glyphosate
1: is perfect because um, uh-huh. you know I, I I looked into the um, you know, the EPSP synthase is the enzyme that it famously disrupts in the plants. Okay. That enzyme has a, uh, a site where it binds phosphate in PEP, it binds phosphate. At that site, it has a highly conserved glycine residue. And if you change that glycine into alanine, then that enzyme becomes completely insensitive to glyphosate. And this tells me that that glycine is a critical piece of the puzzle for how glyphosate disrupts it and then um. i conclude that it disrupts it by substituting for that glycine because glyphosate is a glycine molecule it's a complete glycine molecule except that it has extra material stuck on it. its nitrogen atom that right. extra material looks a lot like phosphate so when you have a place where glycine is essential at a phosphate binding site that is a major susceptibility motif for glyphosate in a protein so you can go find all the other proteins that have that same situation and there's a whole class of proteins called flavoenzymes. And those flavoenzymes enzymes bind they bind FMN, they bind FAD, they bind NADP All of those have phosphates in them and they bind at phosphate binding sites that have highly conserved glycine residues Pretty much three glycine residues highly conserved In a GXXGXG motif at all the places where they bind these these phosphate containing molecules And those enzymes that bind those phosphate containing molecules depend upon binding those molecules to make Deuterium depleted water those enzymes are very heavily involved in providing the mitochondria with deuterium depleted water. Okay. And they're all going to be disrupted by glyphosate.
0: Right. Right. And so when this happens, that makes you susceptible to diseases like COVID-19.
1: All infections actually. And also probably cancer because cancer cells look like they're also trying to solve the deuterium problem. I think the deuterium problem is basic to disease and all the modern diseases. I suspect, and I have to do more research for individual ones, but I suspect it's going to turn out that pretty much all of them are a consequence of um, the failure of mitochondria because of too much deuterium. That's a very wow. bold statement, but I'm starting to really believe that because the more I look, the more it just makes so much sense. And I've, um, I've chased down all these proteins and it's just really, really interesting because even heme, you know, when you break down the heme in the, in the red blood cells, the heme oxygenase, that whole process of breaking down the heme actually provides the mitochondria with deuterium-depleted water.
0: Okay, you know, yeah, so, I mean, so you
1: just look at all these things that are happening, and their and their goal is to get those mitochondria fixed.
0: If you think about it. If you kind of keep the fire metaphor going and you think about it and you're trying to feed, it's maybe like a steam engine or something in the mitochondria and you have to keep the good water coming in and then the wastewater going out or else the the system screws up. And so this virus, a virus like COVID-19, is coming into the body and it's actually helping to solve, it's trying to help to solve this problem. What we're seeing that's scary to us is when the problem and this is something again i'll just reference our our the conversation we had a few days ago which all will be posted below but we we talk about it as a controlled burn versus a wildfire because exactly
1: then you know
0: it's it when when COVID 19 is being used as a controlled burn it's shutting down the mitochondria it's getting the bad water out of there and it's replacing with the good water and that's what its function is and it has this positive function but if it has to happen all over the body because you're so toxic then the bad water starts to get flushed out and then you're going to end up with what people see the the fluid in the lungs and then you start to drown on your own you need so much
1: you need so much that you just can't do it without killing the patient i mean you basically you have to turn off the mitochondria to do it and that's going to turn off the energy supply you can't do that forever without running into serious trouble right and if the mitochondria are so sick you just can't fix them you go into overdrive Sure, Take a, you know, and and, you know, doctors do this too with patients when they're about to, you know, they've got a heart attack and they just had cardiac arrest and they'll do all this stuff, you know, electric shock and whatnot. I mean, these things are pretty brutal, but there's a chance you'll bring them back to life. So it's kind of like the virus is thinking there's a chance I'll get this person back to life. And I'll tell you, one of the worst things you can do, I think, is to provide them, is to um, put them in the ICU on those um, ventilators. The ventilators are providing them with oxygen, which is working against what the virus is trying to do, because the virus wants the mitochondria to turn off. And when you supply them with oxygen and you force it in, the mitochondria turn back on and now you've got it totally messed up. The whole system's broken. It's not working the way it's intended at all.
0: Huh. So you actually kind of, as you get sick, are going to have lower oxygen levels until to kind of keep to dampen the fire so it doesn't get out of control um, so that your body can have a chance to heal.
1: Yeah, you can't fix the mitochondria without turning them off. That's the problem. And you could think about that in some so any kind of a system where you have to clean out the pipes, and you got to turn them off first, right? You right. can <laughs> continue to use them while you're cleaning them out. So it makes sense. You turn them off. You you fix them. You clean them up, and you turn them back on again. But if yeah. you, if they're so dirty, you can't you know you can't clean them enough to get them back on in time to not die because you don't have because right, you know, the whole system's capacity. turned
0: off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's what's fascinating. Happening. Huh. And then, so this is why people then with comorbidities, for example, are so much more uh, susceptible because they've already got a lot of problems going on. They've got a lot of inflammation that's already happening. A lot of yeah. mitochondria has already been shut off, I guess, in yeah. this way.
1: How, how does this... Think, for example, obesity, I think, is an indicator of mitochondrial dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And people who are young, uh, many of the people who are young and die are very morbidly obese. You know, they're very much more sensitive to dying than the uh, skinny people, you know. Right. And I think it's an indicator of mitochondrial dysfunction.
0: How does all of this relate to just the concept of inflammation in general? What what is causing the inflammation then? When you know when, when you when you get when there's a, a an injury to a part of the body, or when there's uh, uh yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, I, I mean, I just I, I've heard I've heard kind of been we've been talking around this a lot, and I, it's sort of like when the inflammation gets out of control is when is when the body start you know you start showing symptoms even you'd be asymptomatic if there wasn't any inflammation caused by the covid-19 the covid-19 comes in it fixes the mitochondria uh and then it very quietly it stays in much. the body but yeah you wouldn't even notice yeah. it because it just did its job and now it's done um but if it has to go into overdrive because the mitochondria is extremely dirty um then it, it it's it you get more and more of this infection happening um and it can turn into this wildfire so what what causes that cascade i guess
1: yeah well i find that extremely interesting and i've been uh, really wondering for a long long time why is it it's always inflammation associated with all these diseases you mm-hmm. know and it's and it's basically releasing uh reactive oxygen species things like hydrogen peroxide and um in fact the um i think I have to back off a lot. I think a lot of, so a lot of these, um, enzymes that, um, for example, NADPH oxidase, you know, is, is releasing superoxide and then superoxide is turning into hydrogen peroxide and then hydrogen peroxide turns into water. So you have this whole sequence of superoxide, hydrogen peroxide water okay. that happens a lot in, and, and it's all part of entaming the inflammation because the superoxide is highly reactive, but then there's enzymes that turn it into hydrogen peroxide. Which is still reactive, but not as much, and then enzyme to turn the hydrogen peroxide into water, and that's what fixes the problem. And that whole sequence is producing deuterium depleted water. So the whole point of it is to produce deuterium depleted water. You need the inflammation to get it started because the body doesn't know how to go directly to the deuterium depleted water. You have to first get the superoxide, which can pick up the hydrogens to make the hydrogen peroxide, H2O2, and then further hydrogens to make water, H2O2H2O. So you've got You've got four hydrogens with oxygen on the water. You've got two hydrogens with the oxygen on the peroxide. And you've got zero hydrogens with the oxygen on the superoxide. So you're going and adding hydrogen to the water. And the enzymes that do that are adding deuterium-depleted hydrogen to the water. So what you are doing with the inflammation is you're making deuterium-depleted water. And I think that's central. That's the reason why you need it. And uh-huh. you need it because your mitochondria are suffering because they don't have enough deuterium depleted water. And then you have a whole mechanism that allows it to deliver, which is really fascinating in itself. So I think it comes in on the cyto- cytoskeletal channels. And there's really special stuff that goes on. For example, the proteins that make up the cytoskeleton have a special skill to be able to make the water fluid. Most of the cell's water is gelled, gelled water. And gelled water traps deuterium. So when you trap the deuterium in the gel, you get low de- deuterium in the fluid. And the cytoskeletal channels are, have fluid water that gets poured right into the mitochondria, which are hanging off of those cytoskeletal channels. So the the whole system is geared towards uh, creating deuterium depleted water, and then trying to channel it into the mitochondria, which is difficult to do. And you get all this fluid build up. You know, when you have heart failure uh, and lung disease, you end up with fluid on the lungs and fluid on the heart. You know, all this fluid mm-hmm. in chest in your chest. I think that fluid is is deuterium depleted. I would love for someone to go in, and you know, very little studying has been done on deuterium. It's really very much Eastern Europe that has that led the way in this research area. Uh-huh. Most Americans don't even know about deuterium. They don't even know it has any role to play in biology. Right. Even medical professionals don't know about it. So it needs to be. We need to be educated about deuterium. It's really fascinating. I've been talking to Professor Laszlo Boros, who is a um, he's at UCLA. He's a he's a pediatric oncologist, I think, at UCLA. And he's obsessed with deuterium. He's the one who introduced it to me last December, actually. And I have just hit the ground running with it because it made so much sense. Once I realized that these proteins that I knew glyphosate was disrupting Uh were major players in maintaining low deuterium in the mitochondria, then I knew I had hit a home run. And I just really dove into it. And I, I really believe passionately that I'm right.
0: Well, I mean, it does. It does make sense. I mean, that's the thing. It's fascinating when you like you talk about it as a as a puzzle, and the pieces of the puzzle fit together. It's like, well,
1: <laughs> you know,
0: there's probably something to it. Then, right?
1: I mean, yeah. Um, it's, we need to do a lot more studying, and I, I'm dying to get people to do research on measuring the level of deuterium in different forms of body water. And they've already done a little bit, and I've, I know that the blood has less than than the um, seawater. Seawater has the 155. The blood has less. Uh, interestingly enough, the saliva has more than the blood has. In fact, the salivary glands are able to export deuterium-rich water, which is a way to try to get deuterium out of the body. And breast milk has less than the than the blood. So the, the mother wants to feed to her infant deuterium-depleted water, which makes a whole lot of sense. And that's about all I've been able to find in terms of body tissues. But I suspect if someone were to go in and take a, a sample of water out of the fluid on the lungs, they'd find that it was low deuterium. And that would be a wonderful thing to do. Uh-huh. I'd love to see the data on that because I would predict that it would be.
0: Um, well, one thing I wanted to ask you before we get too far along is have you heard about the, um, the treatments for COVID that include the, the hydrogen peroxide, the nebulized hydrogen peroxide where people just breathe it in?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's very very interesting because that's going to help to produce deuterium depleted water. Right. Now, of course, also killing the virus. I mean, these things also kill the virus. So there, there's a the um, the body is in a race to kill the virus, or the virus is going to take over and and help to solve the problems. You know, so it's sort of like if you can kill the virus, you don't have the problem. But your my, macrophages are impaired because of their their mitochondria aren't working. You know. And okay. then they they can't. They need ATP, for example, to make. To, to run NOx, which produces the uh, superoxide that kills the, um, and the,
0: and the, and the, 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 matro, the just a, what's the definition of the macrophage then?
1: Oh, those are the immune cells that are, would, would normally clear the virus. And if they're broken, the virus doesn't get cleared. Uh-huh. And that's an indicator to the virus that there's a problem because those, the macrophages can't clear the virus because they're, mitochondria aren't working and so the virus knows in a sense oh this is, they've got a problem with their mitochondria i better fix it right so it's kind of like if i don't get killed then i better fix the problem
0: huh, <laughs> it, right
1: funny way to look at it but i think to some extent that's true if you can clear the virus it's an indicator that your mitochondria are healthy
0: right that's interesting and then um like what happens why does it get out of control why did the virus um you know the virus will just keep replicating i guess as so long as the mitochondria in, yeah, in the in the immune system cells aren't aren't fixed and not working to clear it, and then you end up with a with a whole lot of virus here, um, and it's oh it overwhelms the system. They're trying to fix the whole body, but you can't shut down the whole body, or else the whole body stops working, which is no good. Yeah.
1: Well, there's a very interesting thing that I think happens with glyphosate and heme oxygenase. I mentioned heme oxygenase. The inflammation induces uh, heme oxygenase expression. Heme oxygenase breaks down heme, so you're basically wiping out the heme in the red blood cells. And in doing so, produces deuterium-depleted water. Actually, deuterium-depleted hydrogen peroxide, which then gets converted to deuterium-depleted water by anti- antioxidants like glutathione and um, caspate. You know, there's these uh, enzymes that detox the antioxidants. Okay. and um, heme oxygenase um, tames the inflammation it's well known well established that it's a good sign when you've got heme oxygenase working well the inflammation will eventually resolve however heme oxygen has a highly conserved glycine residue at the place where it binds heme got and it and people who have a mutation in that glycine residue particularly if it's substituted by a bulkier, negatively charged amino you know, acid which is exactly what glyphosate is right People have a rogue version of hemoxygenase that does the exact opposite of what it's supposed to do. It doesn't break down heme and it releases Fe plus four, feral iron, which is incredibly toxic form of iron. And that iron then reacts with the reactive oxygen species to just all hell breaks loose. Mm. And you destroy the vascular wall. And then you get this whole cascade of massive um, blood clots and, and vascular meltdown, multiple organ failure. I mean, it just becomes horrible after that. So the hemoxygenase that's supposed to solve the problem makes it worse. And then inflammation induces hemoxygenase. So you get into a nasty positive feedback loop that basically puts the vasculature on fire with extraordinary inflammation that, and then of course this feral iron, and then you just uh, have a mess. You just have a total mess.
0: All right. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, you're, you're looking at something like, it's just so fascinating the way that, you know, small amounts say, and just sticking with the COVID-19 since that's the thing that everybody's dealing with right now you know small amounts of a covid-19 uh virus can get into your body and then it can it it can fix the mitochondria uh you wouldn't even notice it and then the macrophages or your immune system will take care of it right away and yeah. and uh and that's what happens in an asymptomatic person and you know they just go about their life but then um if you have too much inflammation basically going on already or too many of your macrophages Or or excuse me, of your too much of your mitochondria is is dysfunctional and needs to be cleaned. Then the virus continues to replicate and replicate, and it's fixing and fixing um, what's going on. Um, But then it can cause this this chain reaction that can result in this in this kind of a cascade. Will you go over that one more time? Like, how does then just sticking with the COVID nineteen? Like, what happens then that ends up resulting in in this? the the feral iron that's so toxic you know how do we get how do we get from a a, what COVID-19 doing what it should be doing to heal the mitochondria and then all of a sudden you know we're at this place where we've got feral iron super toxic inflammation all over the body and the blood starts to coagulate in the lungs which we've seen as a result
1: yeah and I think that a possibility that's going on there is that glyphosate is getting in the way because when you upregulate heme oxygenase the body has to make it assemble hemoxygenase proteins proteins and if it's got glyphosate lying around it's going to put it in there uh-huh. and if in that particular place where the glycine is is essential for it to work if you put glyphosate there you're going to kill the protein you're going to make it into a rogue version of itself that is pro-oxidant rather than antioxidant and then it's just going to completely cascade into a nightmare
0: All right. That's fascinating. I, and I have one, I have one more question then why would the water that, so we, you know, not only do we see the blood coagulation, which we have kind of just addressed, but, but then people are getting a lot of fluid in the lungs, this fluid in the lungs you suspect is going to be deuterium depleted.
1: Yeah. And and that's where the cap, the capillary stuff comes in. I was just so fascinated with what I found with this uh, lipoxygenase, lipoxygenase, so, you know, enzymes have various degrees of ability to get rid of deuterium through their mechanisms. They have these very sophisticated mechanisms involving proton tunneling and, and quantum effects. I mean, they have these very sophisticated mechanisms to select for hydrogen over deuterium. Uh-huh. And, um, and so they'll have, there'll be papers that talk about a deuterium kinetic isotope effect, it's called. And they'll say KIE, and they'll say this enzyme has a KIE of six or eight, which is pretty good. It, it's six-fold uh, favoring hydrogen over deuterium. But this lipoxygenase, the numbers are like 60, 160. I mean, it is incredibly good at favoring hydrogen over deuterium. Incredibly good. And it's mm-hmm. not a flavoprotein, protein, which is very, very interesting. So I don't think it's susceptible to glyphosate, which is wonderful. But it um, it's oxidizing. It's converting those... The fats in the membrane of the virus, and also, of course, in the membranes of the cells. So, the endothelial cells lining the artery walls it can ha- help itself to those fats as well if they get oxidized, or even the LDL particles. I mean, all the different particles in the blood that have fat around them um, are susceptible to oxidation damage. And that oxidation damage causes this lipoxygenase to get expressed. And the lipoxygenase produces, it steals hydrogen from those fats to make deuterium depleted water and the fats already have low deuterium it's been shown in you know for example butter and lard have much lower deuterium than carbohydrates Hmm. so people say um, maybe a high fat laszlo will say a high fat diet is healthy because it's a low deuterium diet which is a very interesting view of a high fat diet. Right. But so fats have low deuterium because of the, and that's clear to me from the biology of it. I mean, I've studied all this stuff and I know why the fats have low deuterium. But you start with low deuterium and then you have an enzyme that makes it even lower. You're basically guaranteeing that water is really good. The water that you're making from the oxygen using lipoxygenase, and then the whole, and then the leukotrenes that you produce as a consequence of that reaction from the fats. Those things are are fancy signaling molecules that cause the artery to shut off, so the capillary stops receiving blood. And then the venous side opens up, so the water that's created in the capillary gets trapped and then sent into the tissues. Uh So that's why you get the swelling. You get edema, right? You get swelling in the lungs of water that's coming in that's being made by this lipoxygenase on the basis of the fats that are in the lipid membrane of the virus. It's really amazing.
0: Are they just making too much though? Because eventually people are drowning in this stuff. When- well, that's the
1: thing because it's because the problem is so bad and nobody can clear the viruses. so The viruses just keep going, and okay. and the and the uh, um, inflammation is triggering the whole thing too. And the inflammation is not shutting down because the hemochromagenes is broken. I mean, there's just like so many things going on. That's a whole. It's a house of cards. I mean, the whole system was elegant, but then it starts getting disrupted by all these problems that it just can't uh, can't see uh-huh. through.
0: All right. Well, thanks Great. for coming on the show. Yeah, I really appreciate thanks. it. And the, the, this whole viral theory that we're talking about and um, being able to kind of relate these things to COVID-19 was was really fascinating and informative. So I hope people get a lot out of it. And um, do you want to let people know where they can find more information about your work and, and look up uh, more stuff if, they, if they're interested?
1: Uh, yeah, I actually have a new website called stephaniesenef.net, which is a lot easier than the the MIT mm. one, which is still there, that one's a lot more complicated. And uh, I have links to that one at stephaniesetof.net, so maybe I don't have to give you that one. But, um,
0: right. <laughs> I'm
1: starting to promote a book that I'm hoping will come out um, early 2021 on glyphosate. So,
0: Do you have a name for it yet?
1: Um, we're working on a name, but it's something like, well, the glyphosate effect is probably going to be the main title and then some okay. kind of subtitle involving how a safe, how a quote-unquote safe herbicide is making us all sick or something like that. So,
0: <laughs> Right. All right.
1: Sounds yeah. great. Okay, well, great. Thanks great again. To you.
0: Yep, likewise. Have a great day.
1: Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Well, all right, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it, my conversation with Dr. Stephanie Seneff. I hope you uh, enjoyed that discussion as much as I did. Now, these last couple of months, I've been doing so many uh, interviews with scientists since COVID came around, and I have been learning so much uh, about these alternative theories in terms of how the body works, Uh, and I hope I'm doing some justice in, in terms of trying to have these conversations with scientists and still be able to simplify down what they're talking about so that it comes across to the audience, because I think what Dr. Sinep was saying is really important. One of the things that really sticks out to me is her ability to think about the human body on so many different levels. Her uh, understanding of the biology is so extensive that she can think about it on so many levels, where on the one level it's just here's how your body works, here's the stomach, here's how you digest food, here's the small intestine, large intestine, parts of the body, etc. And then she can break it down onto this cellular level, where... You know, here's how the chemicals that your body breaks down from the food that you eat get digested or the toxins that come in from the environment and how they get dealt with and and what they do on a cellular level. And then even another level below that on the molecular level where she can talk about how uh, the different chemicals are interacting, um, you know, in terms of how the atoms function and how the molecules work together to ultimately eliminate toxins and uh you know increase the nutrient uptake and um, create energy for the body so that you can function uh, in your daily life and just talking about all of these love i mean it's like she can skip from one to the next to the next a- and seamlessly and she can see all the connections so i hope we did a good job of uh, allowing you all to see those connections um We were able to dive pretty deeply into the viral theory, and I just think it's so important because what I see uh, Dr. Sinef doing and other scientists like her is starting to develop a a more holistic approach. It's a little bit more similar to the traditional Chinese model or indigenous models of health, where you're starting to see instead of this invasion model or this military-style model of of allopathic medicine— uh, where we've got, you know, uh, invading particles that are causing disease and they have to be killed off, we're starting to see, well, there's actually a, a virome and a biome inside bacteria and viruses that we need for human health and that they serve a function and that we are living symbiotically with these things. They're not our enemies. We're not fighting off invaders Um that it's potentially possible that uh, viruses are actually coming into our bodies to try to help us this idea because science for a long time now has really understood that this darwinian theory of sexual evolution hasn't really uh, been uh, cutting the mustard as it were it, it, they know that there are holes in the theory humans seem to evolve faster than sexual reproduction could allow to happen and so there's some other mechanism going on here and this idea that dr Senev has that viruses are the piece of the puzzle that actually transfers genetic material from one person to another in a non-sexual way that the RNA comes into your body and then these other viruses can transfer that RNA to DNA and incorporate it into our own genome. We can pass it on to the next generation that our evolution is actually happening in symbiosis with the virus rather than this theory that uh, the viruses merely exist to use us as a parasitic host, and they're just as likely to kill us off as anything else without any kind of positive benefit. Um, I just think it's a great way to think about life. It really reduces the fear uh, that the whole virus thing kind of causes the way uh, germ theory would have it. We've got this invisible enemy that's constantly floating around. It's everywhere. We don't know where it is, and it's trying to kill us all the time. Uh, And this new theory of Dr. Seneff's really can allow us to have a feeling that actually we exist in symbiosis with these germs. We're just looking for a homeostasis, for a balance in our environment, so that we can be healthy enough to incorporate the new information without it overloading our system. As long as our immune system is healthy, then we can incorporate the information just fine. Asymptomatic cases... Uh, if our immune system's not that healthy, we can have some symptoms while uh, the body produces this inflammatory response to try to to try to kill the 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 virus that's replicating too fast and then of course sometimes disease leads to death if your immune system can't control that that controlled burn and it turns into a wildfire so you know just what a great concept and I hope uh, it was explained in a way that everyone could understand. Um, and I really uh, just want to be an advocate for Dr. Seneff. I'm excited that I can help get this uh, this new theory out there into the world. And I hope uh, that you are all paying attention. Um, one of the things that I mentioned in the intro, and I'm just going to reiterate again, is this idea when I talk to somebody like like Dr. Seneff, who's literally on the cutting edge of science. Like so many of us have this idea that science is this, um, it's just this, um, this like one size fits all. Like scientists have found the truth and we know that truth and there's this scientific consensus and if most scientists agree or all scientists agree that this is true it's it must be true um and i think in truth science is always evolving human beings as a species always have more to learn and uh, so this attitude that science has somehow discovered the truth and knows all and uh, we should all be doing what the scientific experts tell us i mean to me an expert is someone that is humbled by the fact that they know the limitations of science. And they can explain to you what is known. But also explore the unknown. And this is the kind of level of scientists I think Dr. Sanef has really uh, attained. She's really achieved a higher level. Uh, I think than a lot of people. Certainly a lot of people that I've talked to. And um, and I just have such great respect for that. Because I think when you, when you don't have that hubris. That belief that you know. But you respect the unknown. Well that's where the really good new ideas come from, and that's where you can develop new paradigms of thought. Not stuck in the old paradigm where science was 30, 40, 50 years ago, but incorporate, always incorporating the new, having an open-mindedness that can incorporate new information and the flexibility to shift your way of thinking with all the new information. And that's exactly where we're at. So uh, what an exciting new theory on the cutting edge of science that we just got from Dr. Sanef. And I hope uh, that you enjoyed it as much as I have enjoyed uh, helping to get the word out there. So... Um, if you are a member, I think I'm going to get uh, our conversation about the viral theory out there for everybody. Um, it's just a really important information. If you're a member, you're going to get the last part of the conversation where we touch on a lot of different things. Uh, also, pretty big um, the kind of scientific changes Dr. sinef believes as uh, many scientists are, are starting to believe that there is this fourth phase of water. I'm having a conversation with uh, Dr. Thomas Cowan next week and we're going to explore this even deeper. Um, but the fourth phase of water is like a gel-like structure. She talks about the sulfates. I don't know enough chemistry to really Uh, describe this all to you, but she talks about how uh, there are certain chemical compounds that help water turn into this fourth phase, which is a gel, not just uh, the liquid, solid, and gas, but a gel state. It's been theorized uh, about for quite some time, and uh, scientists that are looking into this are finding real practical application for this theory inside on the cellular level. Uh, Dr. Cowan has this theory about how this fourth phase of water helps the cell maintain its structure uh, and then that allows the mitochondria to function optimally and produce the atp you've heard the the uh, interview with uh, dr seneff we talked pretty extensively about uh, the mitochondrial disorders being really one of the root causes of disease so so uh, it all kind of comes together. We get into that in the second half and we talk uh, a little bit more about the whole glyphosate issue and COVID and touch on on some other things. But um, I, I think that uh, getting this viral theory out there is uh, important. I hope you all are paying attention and, and, uh, and uh, just at least having the curiosity to say to yourselves like, you know, this is a possibility uh, and I hope that somehow, Dr. Seneff talked about Uh, Some of the challenges, like getting funding when you're an independent researcher, Uh, the big corporations really control the funding. So, you know, we'd like to see more funding into some of these alternative concepts and theories, um, but not all of them are as profitable. Uh, Having spoken with Dr. Seneff in the past, actually, at one point she told me that she really thinks that this this molecular biology has gotten to a place like humanity has come to a place where they understand how the body works so well, that there could be a revolution in healthcare um, where basically more supplementation and this idea of creating a a strong immune system and uh, living more uh, in this, uh, in this stasis with the environment in this homeostasis where you're in balance and harmony with the environment around you. If this is the focus and then just making sure that your body has the right chemicals and supplements, nutrients, um, these um, natural supplements that cannot be patented and are not profitable for the current system, but that the science is there, that there could be a revolution in healthcare care uh, in terms of how to use supplementation and natural medicines uh, to transform human health uh, really inexpensively. Um, and so, you know, she's got a lot of good to give to the human race really, and if we're willing to open our minds that maybe this uh, very expensive allopathic model is not the best and there are other options out there, and we can try to focus our attention on this, get more funding to people like Dr. Seneff so they can do the experiments uh, and write the papers that are required to get these theories to be more than theories, to get, to get them popularized and out there in the world where other physicians and scientists can see uh, their arguments and uh, they can become more a part of the mainstream. So thanks again for listening. Uh, don't forget that you can check out more of her work at stephaniesenef.net, and I'll also send you all to The Shift with Doug McKenty on facebook or twitter or excuse me facebook and youtube i am at d McKenty on twitter uh, and also on the web at www.theshiftnow.com i have been your host my name is doug McKenty, and we will catch you next week for the 54th episode of the shift all right everybody thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon take care